Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Speaking to you today from the infirmary at the Franklin household. You can notice my voice is a little gruff. You got the boobons. <laughs> I do, yeah. I got, a, I got a viral infection. I'm sure of it. So if I uh, gasp for air, you know, or cough my brains out, we'll, we'll take all that stuff out of the show. So what you're left with is at least a professional sounding. So how are you, buddy? I have no colds of any kind. I'm very comfortable. I've been working hard on the history of .NET, so I've been up on the coast place. Very cool. Got a lucky stretch of nice weather. It's cool because it's fall, but the ocean's been very calm, no big storms. Just me and my dog, the, the wife gave up on me, went back to the city. for. She's coming back up on the weekend. So, mm -hmm. I've had a few days of complete solitude and I hate to say it, but boy, I really like it, you know? <laughs> That's great. The introvert in me is happy. <laughs> happy. Just well, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? I'm going to ask you which you would prefer. Okay. So, I have an app that's pretty cool that I could share. Yes. And I know you would like it because of the work that you do. Yeah. And I also have a YouTube video of the Franklin Brothers Band playing She Won, one of my original songs, live. Yep. Mixed and mastered, and it looks and sounds delicious. Which would you prefer? Well, I mean, I, I know She Won very well. In fact, there is a long series of emails of you and I going back and forth of your yeah. reshot of that, the remake of it, because you turned it pr into a proper... I think we decided it was a lament when we were done, yes. right? Yes. So it's yes. super personal to me because you made a poppy version of it first years ago. And then, so I, I, everybody needs to hear that. I happen to know it and I'm a sucker for gadgets. So give me the gadget. Oh, okay. I didn't know where you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> so give me the gadget. Uh, there you go. All right. It's an app. Okay. It's called Evernote. Oh, classic. Yeah. You use it? No, no. I'm a OneNote guy. I know it. I, I used it back in the day. Evernote had the synchronized across multiple device thing nailed first, yeah. but the moment OneNote finally got that working, I switched to OneNote. Okay. Well, Evernote is a very popular app and they claim on their website, you know, here's the elevator pitch, searchable website screenshots saved from the web and available anywhere. Like you clip web pages as you browse, you yep. keep them all in Evernote, but that's only a little bit of what it does, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It also lets you type notes or scan handwritten notes, add to-dos and photos and images, and even audio, and you can instantly search it. And you search across different devices. It's awesome. And easy to organize. And if you look on, well, I'm on the Play Store for the, for the Android version, it's 4.5 stars. Yeah. Out of 1.5 million ratings. Yeah. Average of 4.5 stars. Yeah. Hard to argue with that. Yeah. You commit to a note system. Like every geek out from, I think, nuclear weapons on. Yep. I wrote all the scripts in OneNote. Yep. You know, just like that's reality. When you get committed to a tool like that, you end up with a, a legacy of stuff in there. Right. My original thoughts on what would become humanitarian toolbox when that idea first came up, which is part of the 2012 road trip, mm -hmm. they're in OneNote. Wow. You know, that's, that's sort of the reality. So, I, it's very compelling. I like it better than... Paper notebooks, because they're easier to access. They're easier to search. You're, you're more likely to actually use them and go back to them. So, yeah, very good. can't say enough about using a tool like that. Cool. Well, that's what I got. What do you got? 
I grabbed a comment off of show 1222, the one we did with Benjamin Howarth back in November of 2015. So that's like three years ago now, once a while ago, when we were thinking beyond the spa. Remember when we thought about spas? We don't seem to think about spas much anymore. Yeah, we just call them web pages now, or apps. Yeah. And a bunch of great comments on that show, but this is the particular one that I read. This is from Rodney Foley, who said, Hey guys, the second time you brought up JSON schemas and also referenced XML schemas while basically throw them up in your mouth while trying to get the phrase XML schema out of it. Uh, you know, maybe it's not just schemas that annoyed us. XML as a whole. <laughs> I think it was the XML part yeah. of the schemas. It's just proof that not everything Tim Berners-Lee does is genius. You guys have obviously had some bad traumatic experiences around them and are fearful of JSON having schemas as well. You also speak of JSON schemas as something new. When what is occurring is that it's becoming popular and you're hearing about it for that reason. The JSON schema has been around since it was first introduced by the Internet Task Force Internet Draft way back in December 9th of 2009. And it's currently on its fourth draft. So in about a week, it'll be six years old. Although admittedly, there's lots of stuff that goes into first draft that nobody uses at all. So as somebody who's working on history stuff, counting first drafts as relevant of anything, pretty questionable. Yeah. I would like to see if I can help you see the light when it comes to XML schemas and make you not fear them or their JSON flavors. I've been using XML schemas for a long time. Maybe this is just Stockholm Syndrome. Have you considered that? Wait a minute. I don't fear them. I'm angry at them. Yes, that's right. This is not fear. <laughs> this is loathing. There's a difference. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you on this. Yeah. And they found a more welcome or place placement to DTD docs. Okay. If it's a choice between DTD... <laughs> And XML schema, I take your schema. Okay. I'll take XML. All right. It's okay. It would be the lesser of two evils in that situation. Yes. Now, remember, this is also Rodney from three years ago. So maybe he's recovering now, but I currently use them. Now, think about this. This is 2015 when he says this. I currently use them as a primary source of documentation for XML, which is shared with other groups for public APIs that consume XML the API owns. I also use them to generate automatically several variations of text XML documents to help validate known and unknown scenarios. Mm -hmm. All right. So what I take away from this is three years ago, Rodney was still actively using XML. <laughs> Poor guy. Oh. Well, no, but he's like, so he has a suite of tooling to be effective in that space, right? I'm not saying it's contemporary yeah. technique, but it's like he's got a set of tools that in 2015 made sense for him. And, you know, if you're going to be committed to XML, then these statements that he makes from here make total sense. I have never and will never use a schema to validate an XML document in a production environment. Yeah. I never even use the validation functionality of a schema outside the testing scenarios. That is primarily a form of documentation. I've also found a secondary use for at least one group at my company. To become heavily dependent on the XSD files I create without mm -hmm. knowing about what an XSD is. They use them for IntelliSense and Visual Studio when viewing and editing XML documentation by hand. It's a schema. It's a, it's a big old JSON file with a lot of stuff you can't read. Well, and, but also the fact that it feeds into IntelliSense and so forth. I mean, again, there's a workflow here. This is not, yeah. you know, I have a, it's not like I have a bad habit on the side. Oh, no, I'm fully committed <laughs> to this space, right? Like it, I'm all in and, you know, using the whole thing. You're committed. Yeah, no, and it's the thing. It's like they clearly are using XML deeply inside their organization, and yep. there is tooling in Visual Studio that makes it awesome. Yep. Right? That actually keeps it manageable. 
there's also JSON IntelliSense in uh, Visual Studio, which I'm, I'm assuming comes from uh, a sort of JSON schema syntax as well. Almost certainly, yeah. I get it. Schemas have a place, but at the same time, your schema obviously has to evolve depending on your data contract and depending on the, how your software evolves. So, yeah, I'm ambivalent. I mean, I will say in legacy APIs that I've worked with in particular, taking a raw XML dump, generating a schema from it, and then being able to generate a class that serializes into that, the XSD tools in the .NET framework, now that's handy. Yeah. That's very handy. Yeah. But I wouldn't actually use the schema itself. I wouldn't use the XSD file in production. I'd simply take no. the class and then just go serialize. Well, and this is exactly what Rodney's describing. And by the way, that's the voice of our guest today, Benjamin Howarth. Well, and this was a comment to Benjamin from his show from three years ago, which he never Absolutely. responded to. So, you know, we're cleaning up his mess right now. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger thing here, and I, maybe we're a little off track, but I think this is valuable, and I appreciate Rodney for sending this, is we're talking about two distinctly mm. different philosophies here, which, you know, there's the web, anything goes, I will just parse what I can from your data mindset that mm. seems to be prevalent yeah. today. And then there mm. is this more enterprise-centric, oh, no, no, here's what I expect, and I will tell you yep. if I'm missing anything or if you send me things that don't fit into these rules. So I, this is my schema mindset. I consider it an enterprise-y mindset, but they, both methods work. It's just, you know, one is declarative and prescriptive, and one is... Mm. You know, we just legalized pot in Canada, man. Here, Pat, take a, take a <laughs> blunt and suck down the data. Right? <laughs> I was going to say schema validation for something like a bank, for example, or yeah. a financial institution where you're relying on you're relying on both parties knowing what the contract is. Then, yeah, schema validation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a place for it. But, yeah, as you say, in today's modern web environment, especially with stuff like functional programming, where, you know, you have functional objects in JavaScript and so on. And yeah, I do see the validity of both. But it also means that with the, the challenge we got into with schemas back in the day, and, and still is an mm. issue today, is you have to synchronize updates. You have to negotiate a new schema each time there's an update. You want to bring in a new customer mm. some ways down the pipeline? Like, here's the stack of rules you've got to get on board with before you get to play with us. So mm. it, it's kind of an old school business model too, but that doesn't mean yeah. it doesn't exist. It lives in its particular world. And I think the main thing here is Rodney's just reminding us like there are folks out there that are successful and productive with these tools. So stop making fun of them. Mm -hmm. There's some people that still have to have the misfortune of working with WinForms. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Now we've insulted the XML users and the WinForms users. This is awesome. <laughs> Starting the day right. There you go. It's all about, hey, yeah. the only thing I say, good news to Rodney is we're going to send you a copy of Music to Code by. So thank you so much for your comment. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via Facebook. We publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We convert him to XML and save him in Evernote. <laughs> <laughs> right before we fax him. <laughs> no, 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 no. Semaphore flags. Sure. There you go. Oh, semaphore flags. Yeah. All right. Well, let me formally introduce Benjamin Howarth. Uh, he's a freelance consultant and web developer specializing in the .NET open source arena, building awesome projects and websites, and hopefully making other developers' lives easier along the way. As well as blogging about all things .NET and open source, he loves traveling, running, politics, and promoting mental health and related charitable causes. 
Welcome back. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be back, guys. Pleasure to have you. Awesome stuff, man. So uh, we should just apologize right now for all the shade we're throwing on XML and Windows Forms, and we've moved on. Yeah. We personally have. I'm sorry if you haven't. <laughs> Good job if you haven't. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, I'm currently working on the refit library, which is part of the reactive extensions for .NET Rx. And there's a really neat little um, API client, if you will, called refit, which is part of that. Hmm. And it's a way of being able to create, basically create an interface and then define the methods and the return types on it. And it just news up a class for you. So it's all unit testable and abstracted and pretty brilliant. And uh, someone has actually just asked for XML support in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, that's the pipeline to a lot of yeah. extra systems that don't speak anything else. And we're going to do it. I've got a branch open and uh, all we've got is just swapping out the Newton self JSON uh, serializer and swapping it in for an XML one. There you right. go. So yeah, we're going to do it and it's going to hopefully come out in the next release, wow. which will be quite nice. So let's talk about what we're talking about here, which is uh, Roman Spa, or at least that's a springboard. Yeah. So Roman Spa, back in the day, I uh, did this little proof of concept, which was how you could export MVC server-side routes out to client-side, say, AngularJS or Knockout. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this would be back in 2013. And at the time, Google was unable to index JavaScript-loaded content. So Twitter, for example, came up with the hash bang thing, where you did a hash and an exclamation mark. And it would then, without JavaScript, it would load with like an underscore query string on the end to yep. load the full HTML to get the content. So Roman Spa was a kind of little proof of concept that was like, hey, you can actually load MVC views as your Angular views, but still have the routing effectively load up the entire page when a search engine gets it. Cool. Yeah, very cool. It was kind of neat. It was it was a needle proof of content, especially if you were taking, let's say, an MVC site and moving that into, you know, a modern progressive web app. Right. You know, that, that was a way of going, here's your legacy project, let's upgrade it for the new HTML5 functionality and JavaScript APIs. So that, that was fun. But one of the things that I've really been looking at as part of, obviously, web apps and stuff is more to do with web performance these days. And how we look at sites and apps, PWAs in particular, portable web apps, mm -hmm. which is, you know, uh, supposed to be a whole HTML5 page and partials and stuff. And it can still work offline using JavaScript service workers. And one of the things I've been really looking at with a lot of projects over the last, I'd say, four years is mostly to do with performance of both websites and apps, because it's kind of approached as a bit of an afterthought. We look at all this mm. tooling in the .NET space, and we've got amazing tools like Razor and Web API and Newtonsoft JSON and all of these great things, and ASP.NET Core as well, and the new identity framework. We've got these fantastic tools to build this stuff. And what we don't think about is how these work on devices that are less capable. Right. One thing that Google actively promotes is that 75% of the web is still only on two or three G speeds, Man. which is 384 kilobits a second. Now, I'm lucky I get the luxury of an 80 meg business line at home, which is really quite nice. But most of the UK still doesn't have fiber. And a lot of people, especially in developing countries, still use basic feature phones. You know, we're talking right. things like, I guess, the old Nokia 6600s, if you remember those days, you know, <laughs> the clamshells. Yep, Symbian, you know, the precursor to Android, which sure. was the consortium between Motorola and Ericsson and Sony, which was a kind of Linux port, which ran Java apps. So before we even had Java-based Android apps, we had Symbian and uh, various different versions of it on Nokia and Motorola and all sorts. And yeah, so I want to talk today really about a few tools that 
I think should be added kind of to the to the ASP.NET developers portfolio of things they should be looking at when they're assessing performance of their website. And uh, one of them is a really old little tool, which was built by the guys at Yahoo Engineering back in the day. So do you remember the UE framework when loads of people were coming out with different JavaScript frameworks like jQuery and there was Prototype was another one and Scriptaculous and the UE, Yahoo UI framework was one of them. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Before Microsoft kind of, I think this was 2008. Well, it came with Visual Studio 2008. They were like, nope, we're going all in with jQuery, which kind of then won the argument. In 2010. Yeah. And that was a great move. And then that became standardized. And then everyone, when, when Google came out with Angular, everyone went, oh, right, jQuery sucks. Let's move to Angular. I, I don't think it was quite that simple, but yeah, <laughs> we, we went on from there. jQuery had its issues. There's no two ways about it. But yes. there was a lot of feeling around yeah. before Angular sort of bubbled to the top. Oh, yeah. I think as people started realizing that you could create effectively MVX, like model view view model or model view controller stuff in the browser, yeah. that's where jQuery kind of started breaking down basically and i think steve sanderson came out with knockout js which was an mvvm library on top of jquery and that was great but then obviously as as you mentioned jquery had its issues but back to the ue framework as part of the ue uh, toolkit there's a chap called marcel duran and he's worked for yahoo he's worked for google i'm not sure if he's worked for microsoft but i think he's currently at google he came out with a tool to help measure front-end website performance so we're not just talking about how quickly it takes for the server the asp.net to actually render the html we're talking about all the other factors like loading css loading javascript loading images where they're placed within the page right for example if you place a css file in the body of the document that will actually slow down the browser's ability to read those rules and then paint the elements on the screen so, and he came up with this tool called Yslow. Yeah. yeah. That was Souders as well, wasn't it? I think Souders was talking about it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So, Yslow was a great little browser extension, which used to run 23 rules. If you pull it up, it's on yslow.org. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure why, recently it stopped working in both Opera and Chrome. So, I'm looking at the package manifest to try and recompile it to bring it back up to date and back into the marketplace, because it's still relevant. Sure. But it runs a load of different rules. Things like HTTP caching policies. Like if you're downloading a bunch of images, let's say little background images or in in your CSS, then you should obviously set those as part of the HTTP spec. There's like an expiry header and that tells the browser how long to cache the file. So every time you go through every single page or every single part of your app, the browser knows, oh, I can go back to the cache. I don't have to keep on re-downloading this. Yeah. And it's a great little kind of checklist, if you will. I think it runs a total of 23 different rules. Benjamin, sorry to interrupt you for just this moment. I want to dive into this. But first, this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core 3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? 
Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code rocks to get a discount. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin, .NET Rocks, we're talking to Benjamin Haworth. And we're talking about why slow, certainly one of my favorite areas. And I'm looking down the list of 23 because they're classic. And, you know, number one is minimize HTTP requests. Yeah. Yes. And I know there's folks out there look at that and go, hey, dude, HTTP2 makes that irrelevant. Ah, you would think so. Yeah. You would think so. Now, HTTP2 is a great upgrade to the spec. What it means is if a server supports it, it will open one HTTP connection and download multiple resources over that connection. Right. Now, that sounds nice. However, that only applies per domain. So if you're downloading stuff from multiple domains, and again, this is actually something that's listed, reduce DNS lockups at number 10, so use less domains. But if you are using multiple domains, even if you're using HTTP2, even if it's supported, that's still an extra connection. Yes. Right? So minimizing the number of connections is certainly a good start. And of course, we talk about things like minifying your CSS as part of this. So don't download 10 separate CSS files if you can just download one. Minify your JavaScript, same thing. There's another little technique which is known as CSS tweening, which is where you can take uh, multiple background images used in different places in your site and then set all the places that that's used as basically one image and use background clipping to only show a tiny subsection. So let's say you've got 10 images or something, and one of them is like a little Facebook icon or a Twitter icon, and that's maybe 30 pixels by 30 pixels. You set the background image to be your big master one that contains all those images, but then just clip it to that 30 pixels. And then the browser only needs to make one request. And it can cache it, which is really handy. So yeah, so there's lots of little things in here. Let's see. GZIP components. This is one that gets missed a lot. So trying to use either GZIP or Deflate, which are two compression algorithms. And you can shrink somewhere either between, I think it's somewhere between 30 and 70% of the request size by doing this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't do it. No. Well, there was a problem in IE 5.5 a million billion years ago mm. with the GSIP format. Oh, Lord. And, you know, you talk about people's old crusty scars, right? It's like you had this one problem yeah. in 1998, and so you just yeah. don't use GSIP forever after. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, GZIP and Deflate are now widely used, yeah. widely supported on all browsers, and you can do this stuff whether you're using a .NET platform or a Linux platform or whatever. But a lot of CDNs, I think, will actually natively support this as well. So I think the Azure CDN will automatically GZIP if it detects that it can, yeah. which is really handy. But you wonder how many of these should just be automatic now, like the tooling does it for you. You shouldn't even think about it. Yeah, exactly. You should. But some of it still doesn't. And some yeah. people have custom setups. Some people have their own CDNs. I remember, I think the first podcast I did with you guys was in early 2014. I was talking about Umbraco at Universal Music Studios. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we had our own CDN, actually. And, uh, and we didn't GZIP at all. And I'm pretty sure they still don't as it happens. So yeah, that's that's kind of something that still has to be thought about. It's good stuff. But yeah, we've also got stuff like, let's see, put style sheets at the top, put scripts at the bottom. I've got a brilliant website that is a client project I've looked after for a while. And it's called verbier.com. It's a Swiss ski resort website. It's a very luxurious Swiss ski resort in the Alps. They haven't upgraded it for about seven years. So it's a brilliant example of everything, not what to do with your current website. It's not even mobile friendly. They haven't paid for a redesign. It's got nothing on it. One of the bugs in there was a lot of web developers will be familiar with the things like the Facebook like button. 
you know, a little bit of a div and a script that you put in. Right. Someone had previously pasted that in the head of the document, which means that it thought that all the style sheets were actually in the body. So just by putting in some bad HTML, it basically broke the entire browser render and subsequently made it slower than it should have been. Yeah. Which is a, it, it, it's a really amateur mistake, but it has a massive impact on performance. Souders in his second right. book yeah. really dug into this idea of not causing CSS re-renders and so forth. Yes. And I think it wasn't on the original list because not enough people were using CSS when they were first talking about this. But as the hmm. yeah. web evolved... And you started benchmarking, like, what's the problem here? You started seeing bad CSS behavior became a huge factor yeah. in actual render times. It's easy to get lost in latency and bandwidth concerns. But if you're torturing yeah. the guy's client machine, he's still having a bad experience. Exactly. Exactly. So you've got this entire list of YSO stuff. And one of the things I love about this is, as well as having extensions for Firefox, Chrome, and Opera, and it did have one for Safari, I don't know how to dig into that one in a detail. It's also got command line tools, and it also works as a headless plugin for PhantomJS, because I like talking about with web performance tools, is it's nice to run these kind of benchmarks to get you a kind of overview of what you're looking at and where you need to improve to begin with. But being able to run these automatically as part of your builds right. is a really powerful insight. So you can actually see, right, we actually changed the way this was structured, and now we see consistent improvement across lots of areas in the app. And PhantomJS is a headless browser, which I think runs on WebKit, I think. And you can actually run YSlow as a plugin within that, and then you can output the results in JUnit format so it gets picked up by any continuous integration server. So that's really neat mm. as a, a way of just having like, oh, I can run these checklists against multiple URLs, get multiple results back, and really have some in-depth understanding of where there might be in-browser render performance issues with my app and some potential bandwidth ones too. That's really smart. Yeah. What about tools like web page tests? When you talk about integrating into the pipeline, I've always been a fan of, hey, let's go look at what this page looks like from the UK. Let's see what it looks like from India. You know, just in terms of yes. routinely reminding yourself, hey, it works great in your oh, five yeah. millisecond local LAN connection, but what's it like for a real customer out in the <laughs> world? Mm. Absolutely. So there's two tools I want to talk about for actually testing that. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned web page test, and I'll come to that in a bit because I love particularly there's one feature of this that's absolutely killer. But before that, I want to talk about Lighthouse, which is in the Google Chromium project. And it used to be called PageSpeed Insights for people who are familiar with it. If you open up Chrome or Opera, because they both run on Chromium, and you go to your DevTools section, you've got all the regular bits, like you've got the Elements section for the DOM, you've got the network that shows you what's been downloaded, like scripts and Ajax requests and so on. And then over on the far right, for about, I think it's the last 18 months or so, there's this new little tab, and it's called Audits. And this is Project Lighthouse. Nice. And it's a really powerful set. Like YSlow, it runs a set of rules against your web page. But it goes into some more detail. And what it does is it actually, you can deliberately set it to replicate a really poor-performing device with a really poor-performing network connection. And this is where it gets really good, because what it uses by default, I think, is a Nexus 5 with a 3G internet connection. Hmm. And so then it will run very similar rules to YSlow, but obviously upgraded. It will look more at things like CSS3 rules, right? whether you're doing things well in terms of 
your responsive design, time to first meaningful paint. It will actually assess your content and start to determine when a user can actually interact with your page, along with things like running JavaScript too. I mentioned the verbio.com website earlier. Unfortunately, at the beginning of the summer, it got hacked and taken down and it's been offline since. But Hmm. whenever I run this, basically, it takes about 25 seconds just to load on a 3G device on a Nexus. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great reminder, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're living in LTE land. Hey, Benjamin, hold that thought because we uh, have one more thing to do. Richard, you know what time it is. Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah, that's right. It's time to run this week's joke through an optimizer so Mm -hmm. that there's no fluff. Only pure funny, cached and compressed for performance. <laughs> you know, if you say you minify the humor, we only get to giggle at it, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you want to hear it again? <laughs> <laughs> I've already got it here. I can hear it anytime I want. <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll just 304 you that. <laughs> it's fine. It reminds me. I could, I could tell you a UDP joke, but I wouldn't know if you guys got it. Uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> tell it twice and we'll ignore one. it's actually time to give away a 200 dollars amazon gift card compliments of progress telerik to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club but first let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today telerik devcraft with more than 1100 telerik.net and kendo ui javascript components and controls you can easily build modern high-performant web mobile and desktop apps as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. New this year is a free online training program for all license holders. With this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com slash download well all right buddy who's our winner today's winner is phil peace congratulations phil golf clap for you peace be unto you phil and <laughs> phil just won a 200 dollars amazon gift card from progress telerec just for being a member of the dotnet rocks fan club and if you'd like to join the fan club go to dotnetrocks.com click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions and join the club we have thousands of members all over the world in every show we'd like to give away stuff from our sponsors And every December, we give away $5,000 technology shopping spree (laughs) to one lucky member of said fan club. But you won't win if you don't sign up. So go do that now. And okay, Benjamin, it's your turn. You knew this was coming. You got $5,000 US. What are you going to buy? All right. So this answer takes a few parts because I'm going to quote Scott Hanselman's four Bs, which is (laughs) your bytes, invest in your hardware. Your back, invest in a good bed because you're going to be spending a third of your life sleeping in it. Mm. Invest in your bum, so get a good chair because you're going to spend a lot of time sitting in that while you're coding and invest in your brain. Okay, so bytes, I've got covered. I got a really sick, nice little laptop with an i7 and 32 gig of RAM. I don't need any fresh tech at the moment. Mm. But bed, I definitely upgrade my mattress. Okay. Bum, I would definitely go for an Aeron chair. Classic. Wow. Classic chair, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I would definitely get myself an Aeron. Then in brain, this takes a couple of parts. I'm actually doing a college degree at the moment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, like, a, like a few of us in this community, I'm actually self-taught. And 
So I'm doing a, a college degree in computing and psychology. So I'd put a little bit of money towards that. A plural site subscription, obviously. Mm. And for the brain, I'd also invest in an app which I use called BetterHelp, which is how I get regular therapy. As I mentioned, I uh, do a lot of advocacy with mental health and support groups. Right. And uh, I, ha I have uh, high-functioning Asperger's syndrome and bipolar, and I, I talk and blog about this. And BetterHelp has really helped me over the last few months work through personal issues, professional issues, and really helped me to become a better person personally and professionally. So I, hi I highly recommend it. And lastly, I'm going to be doing some marathons next year for a helpline called the Samaritans, which is a support phone line for anyone in the UK. It's completely free, 24-7. If you're struggling personally, mentally, for any reason, you can pick up the phone and someone will just listen and talk to you without any judgment or anything at all whatsoever. That's great. It's cool. They're a fantastic service. And yeah, I'm doing uh, three marathons for them next year. So you're not happy with just Alexa listening to you? Then? <laughs> yeah, <sure>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Alexa, unless Alexa does that, What's that psychology bot called Eliza that they invented in the 80s? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it parrots back things to you. Yeah, it's not that effective. <laughs> it's the Rogerian psychotherapist program. I, I rewrote that in VB and just <laughs> dove into it because the original basic version was so convoluted. <laughs> I dissected it. Now, that was a fun exercise. My uh, goodness. Yeah. And, and now I got to do my obligatory cover your phone's ears joke alexa send my porn collection to my grandmother nice <laughs> there you go you're welcome <laughs> why does this keep happening <laughs> <laughs> oh my i'm sorry goodness. i can't find that <laughs> <laughs> oh my god all right that's quite a comprehensive list benjamin i gotta admit it's yeah. really great thinking around all of those things and good on you for supporting that community mental health is a severely overlooked problem yeah we totally agree with you it's something that um in the uk in particular there's a statistic it's promoted a lot by mental health charities but not enough workplaces and individuals are really kind of familiar with it and it's that one in four people every single year will suffer from a mental health issue whether that's a nervous breakdown or depression or or anxiety or something else so uh, that's a quarter of your friends families yeah. colleagues and that's something really that needs to be made more aware of do you think it's a cultural thing in the uk this the sort of stiff upper lip is that a real thing uh it can be it used to be and it is it is changing slowly mm -hmm. and it involves a lot of talking about it a lot of education advocacy it involves people willing to open up. And I don't think that's necessarily a British thing. There is, there is something about that. But I do think as we've definitely progressed as a technological society, I think it's become a lot easier to be able to accommodate people with these issues. Sure. Remote working, for example, for people who have anxiety is great. Yeah. You know, if I have a particularly bad episode or a very bad day, I can just, you know, say, you know what, I'm actually just going to work from home today and I can still work, but I can, you know, actually take the time to really look after me hmm. because when I'm at my best, that means the work that I produce is also at my best. Right. So, it, it has benefits for everybody. I also feel like our industry is particularly notorious for almost celebrating forms of mental illness and pressing people to, to have extreme imbalances in their lives and I, I think that we're starting to lash back against this that you do need yeah. to take a break 
that coding all night doesn't yeah. make better code. It makes worse code. Yeah, I actually have a whole segment about how, and I think this is particularly with American culture, but it's also seeped into other Western cultures. You know, during the 70s, when in Silicon Valley, Microsoft and Apple in the very early days, you know, programmers who were a lot of them, particularly on, I get, uh, I'd say, the autistic spectrum, were able to work for ridiculous hours, like 12, 14 hours a day with laser focus. And that's, you know, that's a side effect of, of those kind of syndromes or disorders. And the rest of the commercial world saw people working for 12, 14 hours a day at their desks and churning out multi-million, multi-billion dollar profits. And they went, oh, right. So the solution is stay longer at your desk. You know, so the idea of a, you know, the 40 hour working week has disappeared completely for people who are neurotypical. So, you know, people who don't have autism spectrum disorders. Right. And that has seeped pervasively into culture over the last 40 years. If you go back to the turn of the century, Henry Ford took his workers' hours from 10 hours to eight hours a day, and he took his workers' days from six days down to five. And everybody said he was crazy for doing it. Everyone said, you know, the longer your workers are at their stations, the more product you're going to make, the more yeah. money you're going to make, etc. Everyone thought he was crazy. But he saw a 25% rise in profit by cutting hours. Right. Some companies have even gone down to a four-day working week, and they've seen increases in profits. And people work best when they're well-rested and they're well-happy and they're well-content. And, uh, yeah, some people do have the ability to crunch. You know, yeah, I've been guilty of doing 12, 14 hours a day for maybe a couple of days or whatever. Right. But then you absolutely have to bal balance it out with time in lieu. You can't, it can't be a permanent fixture. Uh, I'm fairly certain that doing these 60-hour working weeks is actually, you know, exacerbating mental health issues within the general populace. So, yeah, it needs to, it needs to go back to a healthy balance. I agree. Yeah, no, we're on board with you, brother, and, and those conversations are continuing and uh, more happening, too. I'm excited. Oh, definitely. It's, 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 there, there is absolutely progress. There's massive campaigns. Major banks in the UK are running campaigns promoting this stuff with celebrities and things. And... Yeah, you know, it is it is becoming a very, very much part of the conversation nationally and internationally. But yeah, there's still more to do. Let's dive back into this because I do want to talk about web page tests. They've done a good job yes. making it easy to add to your CI CD pipeline. That is just part of oh, yeah. building an app now is doing these oh, benchmarks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So web page test is this online hosted service, which is great. It's also open source. It's hosted on GitHub. And what it allows you to do is effectively take Pretty much any choice of location around the globe, any choice of desktop, tablet, and mobile devices. So you've got choices, things like Android tablets, iPads, different versions of iPads as well, even the older ones, and different locations around the world, and then throw in a URL for your web page and see what the paint time looks like in that browser and how quickly that app becomes responsive and usable for your users. Now, one thing that's part of web page test that I particularly love is once you've run the test on the very far right, there's a dollar sign. When you click through to that, that's a secondary part of their service. And it's called what does my site cost? Nice. Yeah. Now, what this does, it takes the data plan from pretty much every country around the world that's over 500 meg on prepay and postpay. And what it does is it assigns a dollar amount to that. And then it takes your web page measures it in megabytes and tells you how many dollars and cents that actually costs as a proportion of that data plan to download. So I look at, let's say, one project I worked on three years ago was the FIA Formula E, the Electric Class Motorsport Championship. 
And their website currently weighs in at six megabytes. Now, to put that in perspective... Holy man! Now, one, it's huge. Now, it's understandable because they're a sporting championship. Obviously, there's high-resolution photography yeah. for fans and the press and so on. But six megabytes, by comparison, 20 years ago, Doom used to be served up on a floppy disk that was less than three meg. Right. <laughs> as in the entire computer game Doom. Yeah. So, and that's the average size of a web page these days is actually three meg. Images, JavaScript, and CSS. And what we look at, there's one cost to us, which is obviously cloud storage and hosting. You know, we get measured per gig or per terabyte how much we serve. What we don't look at is how much that actually costs our users out of their data plans. Sure. I've been doing talks about these tools all around the UK and Europe. And it's always really interesting. I ask people to stick their hands up. I ask them how many people have got an unlimited data plan. And it's maybe about one or two, myself included. Right. And then I ask, what have you got? You've got 5 gig, 10 gig, 20 gig, mm -hmm. whatever. People have got capped data plans. And one of the things that we should be doing as web developers is making sure that not only is our stuff as responsive and as quick as possible, not just for our regular users, but for our users on 2 and 3G and on feature phones, we should also be looking to make it as cheap as possible because bandwidth is expensive. And a great problem that Eric Meyer and Troy Hunt discuss. I'm not sure if you saw this on Twitter. Eric Meyer sits on the CSS working group for the W3C. Mm -hmm. Right. Famously, he has color on the HTML spec named after his late six-year-old daughter, Rebecca Purple. <laughs> and he was doing a training class out in Uganda. And he was having massive issues because they've only got 50 gig of data to cover several towns and villages because it's a satellite connection. Right. And on top of that, because a lot of websites have been using HTTPS, it means that because they're encrypted end-to-end, -end, they can't be cached in the middle by, let's say, a, a local cache or local proxy. And this causes problems, because obviously that 50 gig gets used up very quickly. So I've been investigating maybe how to try and use SSL man in the middle, maybe using something like a Raspberry Pi with a couple of two terabyte hard disks on the back of it. But that's only part of the problem. The, uh, part of the problem is that because they're so big and because obviously this information only gets cached per PC and you've got 20 kids in a classroom trying to download, let's say, a five or six meg website, suddenly that bandwidth becomes a very, very precious resource, almost as precious as water. And, you know, that is something that we as web developers have a real obligation to try and keep that as small as possible. So things like gzipping, reducing the number of HTTP requests. You know, all, all of these things and, and good cache strategies for the browser, making sure that when we do serve up something that works, it's got to be as reusable and as cheap as possible, basically. Yeah. So and that, that's why I love web page tests, because it shows you from all around the globe. And one of the great things is, again, it's got an NPM module so you can CICD this stuff. You can actually run a global map and say, right, I want to test in 50 different locations around the globe on loads of different devices to find out how good this is or how bad it is, depending on where you are. So yeah, it's a fantastic tool. Have you used Responsinator? I have not. I get a hunch. Is that one of those CSS above the fold generators? Yeah, I believe so. So the idea of a CSS generator is it splits your CSS file into firstly what you see on screen, and then the second CSS file loads everything as you scroll down, basically. Mm. It lazy loads. And I only have one problem with this. What's above the fold, depending on the screen size? Yeah. That's the problem. Like, I've got a laptop that's 1366 by 768. I've got a screen over here that's 1920 by 1080. 
An iPad is 1024 by 768, depending on the orientation. So it's really not about performance. It's just about how it's going to look at a certain screen size. Exactly. And yeah. basically trying to, cut, trying to cut down your CSS file to go, oh, I'm only going to load this one for this screen size. You're going to end up with somewhere between 20 to 50, depending on your screen sizes and depending on how old the devices are that you're serving. Mm -hmm. So that very quickly becomes a very, very painful problem. So yeah, unless you're prepared to have front-end engineers address 20 to 50 different screen sizes, don't bother with it, quite right. simply. It's not, for, for the couple of kilobytes you might save, it's honestly not worth the hassle, quite simply, in terms of staffing and being able to fix individual issues on individual screens. Cool. But yeah, those are, those are the three kind of performance tools I love, is yeah, Wiseslow gives you an indication, and then you delve into it some more with Lighthouse, and then yeah, web page test to be able to show what it looks like globally. What do you use for backend performance tools so two of my favorites for this one of them for load testing in particular is jmeter this is an ancient project by the apache foundation uh, it's open source it has the misfortune of being written in java but we won't hold that against it okay there's another group <laughs> we've alienated in this show yeah there you go. <laughs> yeah i'm very much a boy that was born of the web for the web definitely so anyway, but I do love JMeter and JMeter is amazing because of the number of options you can test with it. So you can do load testing with HTTP, just, you know, requesting a page and seeing how quickly your response comes back. And you can do this from multiple locations. Again, you can do this as part of your CI CD. One of the things I really love is the number of options. If you open it up and take a look at the number of different types of traffic you can sample, it's phenomenal. You can do FTP traffic. You can do LDAP, so you can check your Active Directory resilience. You can do JDBC, so you can, if you want to test how resilient your SQL uh, structure and how optimized your SQL queries are, you can do that. If you really want to hack off your network admin, you can even go down to individual TCP stack data and send raw TCP packets over the wire. It's phenomenally powerful in the number of different things you can test for an infrastructure. So I love JMeter for load testing especially low balance websites, which is a lot of what I do. And then in the .NET space, there's two tools. One of them is Mini Profiler, which I love. It's made by the guys over at Stack Exchange who use it on Stack Overflows. Nice. Yeah, if it's good enough for them, it's, it's pretty much good enough for everybody. It's got support for web forms, MVC, Entity Framework 5 and 6, RavenDB, and it gives you a full breakdown by breakdown like stopwatch start stop stuff that then shows up in the browser so when you load a page you can look at every single section of that page especially in mvc and i think it also shows background tasks things like web services that have been called since the last time you showed it so you can also use it for web api testing as well and one of my best stories about mini profiler was in 2014 late 2014 i just started working for formula e and they'd originally had their website built outsourced and then brought it in-house to engineer it themselves. And they had their first race in Beijing. And their inaugural race, over a quarter of a million people tried watching the website online. And it crashed. Of course it did. Yeah, of course. They were running on a single server. The web host, as a way of trying to uh, stem the flood of traffic, installed a Varnish server in front. So Varnish is a reverse proxy that will cache some of the requests and just serve up HTML for you instead of hitting the web server. I think they managed to serve about 20,000 people in the end, which was pitiful so i get this open on my dev machine and back then i had this i7 with about i think it was 16 or 24 gig of ram and an ssd so this was still pretty good as a dev machine 
And I open this up and I enable mini profiler and down the left hand side, I look at the load time and it's taking 4,200 milliseconds just to render the HTML on the homepage. And that's not including any images, JavaScript, CSS. That's before it's even hit the browser. 4,200 milliseconds. Hmm. Uh, that is slow. There's a number that gets thrown around a lot in performance, which is if a user clicks something and they see a response within 600 milliseconds, they think it's instantaneous, basically. Right. Any slower than that, and they lose interest, basically. I had heard 200 milliseconds from Mark Miller, but ah. but I mean, 600 is still, yeah. you know, it's walking the line. It's kind of under the instantaneous thing. Maybe the expectation is that the web is going to be a little bit slower than a native app, so, yes. so we give it a little more leeway. A little bit, yes. I think the 200 milliseconds is when you're talking about stuff like touch, where you're grabbing something and moving it with your finger. Oh, uh, that's right. Right. That's right. So kind of drag and drop. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a di very much a different interaction from I click on a link. Yes. You do have a sort of yeah. acceptance of, you know, to quote Louis C.K., it's going to space. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a moment. You're in a chair in the sky. In the sky. It's <laughs> amazing. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, so, so six. So yeah, so, so ideally, six hundred is kind of our magic marker where we want stuff to actually start happening for the user. So if they're waiting four point two seconds, and that's just on my laptop, that's me looking at locally running this on my own yeah. web server on my own machine. Right. So this is clearly bad, and and this is where I delve into. You were talking about schemas earlier, and this is where I talk about the dynamic keyword in .NET and C Sharp, and why I absolutely hate it. Commonly, I work with the CMS Umbraco, very popular, open source. And back in the day, they used to have dynamic APIs. Now, what this allows you to do is basically, and this is perfect for JSON, right? If you get a mm -hmm. JSON object for an endpoint and you don't know the schema, dynamic is perfect. Yeah. Because if you don't know if a property exists, dynamic is absolutely fantastic for this. This is absolutely fine. However, for classes that you know, basically what dynamic does is it inherits from an object in the system.core namespace. It's called, and it is called dynamic object. And when you implement your own version, you're effectively doing a giant try catch block. This is what the runtime does. So when you go, let's say my object dot my property, what the runtime will do is it will go try get field, try get member, try get mm. method, try get this. And it will run through this about 10 or 20 times. Now, when you're doing a try, there's obviously a catch to go with it. And when you have a catch, you have an exception. Even if you haven't declared the exception variable, one is generated by the system. Yeah. And what we do know about .NET and about exceptions in general is they're very, very memory heavy. So you, when you're using dynamic, you're effectively creating a 10 to 20 layer try-catch block, basically, with the resulting 10 to 20 exceptions generated in memory even if you don't see them because eventually it gets caught and handled and you get something out yeah so when i was running through mini profiler i noticed that one of these razor views was taking just on its own and this was you know how you have those slidey carousel images you know like five images that go round in a in a circle on a web page and this section alone that was taking three and a half thousand milliseconds so i took all the calls to dynamic out switched it over to proper statically typed serialized classes. And I think the record I got this down to using mini profiler on my machine alone was 142 milliseconds. Wow. Wow. Down from 4,200. Nice. For the whole homepage. So 97% speed improvement, basically. That was my personal record. I was very proud of that. 
But Mini Profiler was absolutely instrumental in being able to measure that. And that was phenomenal. Nice. There's one other tool that other .NET developers use, which is called Glimpse. But I don't tend to recommend it because the thing is, their website's gone offline and the GitHub repository hasn't been updated in a while and neither has the new Git package. So I'm not sure whether it's kind of hibernated or whether it's been abandoned a little bit. I'm not entirely sure. But I do know they, instead of just having ASP.NET, they also have a Node.js one as well. And you get an entire dashboard and it shows you all the different requests coming through. So where mini profiler needs to be loaded into a page to then see all the requests to a web service, Glimpse actually gives you an entire dashboard to be able to look at all of these things through an admin section, right. which is really powerful. Well, it's too bad. We really loved Glimpse. I wonder what's going on with it. I don't know. Well, and it's still there, right? It's on GitHub. And it's still on NuGet as well. And you can still download it and you can still install it. It just seems to have, you know, they, I think, I don't know whether if they've gone, you know, it's feature complete. Do we need to build anymore? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's any of those things. I think they let the domain expire and they're now trying to get it back. Yeah. Do you know, Nick and Anthony both work for Microsoft now, so. Right. We should just go round them up and see what they're up to. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, What's go going on with Glimpse? We have that power. Go have a chat with them. Because that was a great project. And I'd love to see it kind of brought back with some good documentation, good demos. Because from what I've, what I've seen of some of the old screenshots kicking around, it's a kick-ass project. And yeah, that's really awesome. So yeah, so from the .NET tooling side, that's what I use for the server side is JMeter for testing, load balancing and stuff. And then Mini Profiler for the actual going into detail in MVC and web forms and stuff. And then for ongoing monitoring, obviously you want to have a little spot out, like it, you know, keep, keep an eye on performance metrics when you're actually in production. My personal favorite is New Relic because at Universal Music Studios, we used it to identify a problem with a SignalR AngularJS app. And it wasn't actually a problem with SignalR or the web API stuff at all. It was a problem with the AngularJS paint, which was really <laughs> quite interesting because it was holding the connection open. And so it made it look like our server-side metrics were screwed up. So I swapped around the call to close the connection. And then suddenly it just dropped to 200 milliseconds and we knew it wasn't a problem anymore. So New Relic was really good for that. Hey, Benjamin, we're running out of time here. So we'd like to okay. bring this to a nice, tidy conclusion. And uh, we ran the gamut this hour of uh, ah. performance tools and measuring. And is, is there anything that we want to end with? The spectacular finish. <laughs> yeah. Tell you what, if any listeners ever, ever have to use this tool, I personally want to buy them a drink. One last performance tool. When you are Netflix, okay, and you make up to 25% of the US's internet traffic, so 60 odd million yeah. people between six and nine o'clock, mm -hmm. how do you do performance testing? The answer is you don't. Chaos Monkey. That's the one. <laughs> Chaos Monkey. And it's now yeah. known as the Simeon <laughs> Army. This is a little <laughs> bot that what it will do is walk into your AWS or your Azure or whatever your cloud infrastructure is. And what it will do is it will randomly take production servers offline. And your job is to make sure that all your key services are still running. So it is literally, it is like taking a hammer to your servers and going, nope, I'm taking that one offline. Nope, you don't have a service bus anymore. Nope, huh. email, what's that? So uh, yeah, Simeon Army, any listeners who comment and say they work on a project big enough to have to use it, caveat, you can't work for Netflix. I want to meet you and I want to buy you a drink. Yeah. And buy me a drink while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> but there just can't be that many, you know? Yeah, you're right. What do you get to the point where there's not enough internet for you to test your site? Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting problem. There can only, there are only going to be so many of those. Yeah. yeah. And that's how you do it in reverse. Yeah. So, Benjamin, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? What's on your to-do list? Right now, I'm working with a fun little golfing startup app, which is kind of part CMS, part online shop. That's pretty funky. 
and next up is writing a psychology essay and helping my fellow students out with the Open University. Uh, I'm holding a couple of video sessions with them, helping them to understand binary logic and explaining Git to them for when they want to start writing code. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was a, a whirlwind fire hose kind of talk. So thank you very <laughs> much. It's been great having you. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm